Chapter Four of China and the Chinese by Edmund Plochut, translated by N. Donvere. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Holly Rushick. Chapter Four. Lao Tzu and Confucius compared. The appearance of Kilin the fabulous dragon to the father of Confucius. Early life of the philosopher. The death and funeral of his mother. His views on funeral ceremonies. His visit to the king of Lu. And discourse on the nature of man. Confucius advocates gymnasium exercises. His love of music. His summary of the whole duty of woman. He describes the life of a widow. He gives a list of the classes of men to be avoided in marriage. The seven legitimate reasons for the divorce of a wife. The three exceptions rendering divorce illegal. The missionary Gutzlaff's opinion of Confucius' view of woman's position. The philosopher meets a man about to commit suicide. He rescues him from despair. He loses 13 of his own followers. Under the continued influence of Lao Tzu, China would probably have become in course of time crowded with monasteries, in which numerous bonzes would have devoted their lives to sterile contemplation, which would have profited their country not at all. Fortunately, however, the old philosopher was succeeded by the more practical Confucius, who made China what he meant it to be during his lifetime, enforcing respect for tradition with the strict observance of the worship of ancestors. Devoted to agriculture, he did much to promote its scientific practice. An inexorable lover of justice, he had no mercy on the abuses and peculations of the mandarins. He knew how to turn to account every incident which could redound to his fame, and about his name gathered many romantic legends, such as to serve to fix on their hero the love and admiration of the populace. In this he differed, as did all other great leaders of thought in the East, from Lao Tzu, who owed his celebrity to the cult of pure reason alone, a doctrine too abstract for the apprehension of the general public, who ever delight in the marvelous. The earlier philosopher appeared and disappeared with absolutely no eclat, and his most ardent admirers never associated his birth or death with anything supernatural. It was far otherwise with Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, and our Savior, who one and all were credited with the power of working miracles, though those of Christ alone have been authenticated. It could only detract from the real glory of Confucius to dwell on the many extraordinary phenomena which are said by his disciples to have accompanied his entrance into the world. The great Chinese dragon called Kilin, who never comes down to earth from his home in heaven, except to foretell marvelous events, failed not to appear in the garden of the house of the future hero's father, where he vomited forth a stone of jade, bearing the following inscription. A child as pure as the crystalline wave will be born when the dynasty of Chu is in its decline. He will be king, but without any kingdom. Birth of Confucius According to the most trustworthy accounts, Confucius was born in the village of Che, in the present province of Shantung, in B.C. 551. The only child of his parents, he lost his father when he was about three years old, and was brought up by his mother, who was left with very little money. 
To quote the philosopher's own words, he could from the first do whatever his heart prompted, and his mind was set on learning from the age 15. Before he was 20, he had attracted the general attention of his neighbors through the skill with which he rendered the fertile districts which had long been considered barren. He was equally successful in the breeding of flocks, and the land under his care supported thousands of animals, so that the farmers who before could scarcely eke out a miserable subsistence now found themselves rich and well-to-do. On the death of his mother, he had her body transported to the grave of his father, saying, Those who were united in life should not be separated after death. The two were, therefore, buried together with their heads toward the north and their feet toward the south. The remains were protected from wild beasts by being placed in strongly constructed wooden coffins made of planks four inches thick and smeared with oil and varnish. To ensure their preservation as long as possible, mounds of earth forming regular little hills were piled up above them. During the three years of mourning which succeeded his sad loss, when, according to a custom still observed, he could do no public work, Confucius devoted himself to the study of ancient usage in everything connected with the death of a father or a mother. As man, he wrote, is the most perfect being under heaven, that of which he is made up is worthy of the very greatest respect, and he is by nature the king of the earth. Every other creature upon that earth is subject to his laws and bound to do him homage. To be indifferent to what becomes of his remains when the breath of life no longer animates those remains is to a certain extent to degrade him from his dignity and to reduce him to the level of the brutes. The honors you render to those you replace upon the earth will be rendered to you in your turn by those who succeed you. Burial Customs in China During a long sojourn in the Philippine Islands, which have recently been so very much before the public in consequence of the results of the war between America and Spain, I was surprised to notice that the cemeteries were, as a rule, situated in the most barren and uncultivated districts. Once a year, plates of rice were brought and placed upon the graves by the relatives of those interred in them. When I arrived in China, however, I found the same peculiarity the fashion there, and the last resting places of the dead, who had once resided in Canton, Macau, and other large Chinese towns, were far away from the haunts of the living. The reason was explained by the sentence quoted below from the books of the great philosopher, which is translated from Father Amiel's version. It appears that some agents of Confucius had been sent by him to survey certain districts in the kingdom of Lu, and on their return they reported to him that wealthy inhabitants were in the habit of erecting sepulchres on lands which might be made very fertile. That is a strange abuse, cried Confucius and one which I mean to remedy. Burial places should not resemble gardens of pleasure and amusement. They should be the scene of sobs and tears. It was thus that they were regarded by the ancients. To enjoy magnificent and sumptuous repasts, where everything is suggestive of luxury and joy, near the tombs containing the bones of those to whom we owe our lives, is a kind of insult to the dead. These tombs must no longer be surrounded by walls. They must no longer be encircled by trees symmetrically planted. When deprived of all these frivolous ornaments, the homage which all will hasten to pay to those who have ceased to live will be sincere and pure. 
If, then, we desire to perform funeral rites in the spirit of their first founders, we must remain true to the traditions of the sages of the remote past. For the twenty-three centuries which have elapsed since this protest was written, Chinese sepulchres have always been placed on high ground of a dreary, desolate aspect, with nothing to mark them but a plain, unsculptured slab of stone. Philosophers very seldom become real friends, and the more they are thrown together, the less cordial become their relations. The story goes that Confucius, as a young man, went to pay his respects to Lao Tzu, but that the latter gave his visitor very haughtily to understand that he considered him wanting in humility, by which he probably meant that Confucius was too much occupied with the things of this world, and not enough with those of heaven. The fact is that the younger reformer was interested in everything that was going on wherever he happened to be, and was ready to talk to everybody. For all that, however, he studied the most abstruse psychological problems, and I do not suppose that even Lao Tzu himself could have made a better answer than Confucius did to the king of Lu when he asked the difficult question quoted below. The king of Lu. It must be remembered that in the time of Confucius, China was divided into little kingdoms, all of which the sage, who was fond of traveling, visited in turn. When he arrived at Lu, the king, who was already an old man, received him at once, and is reported to have thus addressed him. I have been expecting you with impatience, for I want you to explain certain things to me about nature and man. Man, our sages tell us, is distinguished from all other visible beings by the intellectual faculty which renders him capable of reasoning, and all our wise men agree in adding that man derives this valuable faculty direct from heaven. Now is it not true that we derive our whole nature from our parents, even as other beings are reproduced by generation? I entreat you to enlighten me on this point. It is not easy, replied Confucius, to explain clearly to you a matter of which so little is really known. To obey you, however, I will give you in a few words a resume of all I know on the subject, and your own penetration will find out the rest. A portion of the substance of the father and the mother placed in the organ formed for its reception is the cause of our existence and the germ of our being. This germ would, however, remain inert and dead without the help of the two contrary principles of the yang and the yin. These two universal agents of nature, which are in all things and everywhere, act reciprocally on it, developing it, insensibly extending and continuing it, and causing it to assume definite form. Footnote. In the order of living beings, says M. G. Pothier, in the section of China of La Universe Pittoresque, the yang and the yin are male and female principles. In the order of the elements, they are the luminous and the dark principles. In the order of natural substances, the strong and the weak principles. The germ has now become a living being, but this living being is not yet promoted to the dignity of a man. It does not become one until it is united with that intellectual substance which heaven bestows on it to enable it to understand, to compare, and to judge. So long as this being, thus animated and endowed with intelligence, continues to combine the two principles necessary to the development, extension, the growth, and the perfection of its form, it will enjoy life. It ceases to live as soon as these two principles cease to combine. 
it does not attain to the fullness of life except by degrees and by means of expansion. In the same way, it is only finally destroyed by gradual decay. Its destruction is not, however, destruction properly so called. It is a decomposition into its original elements. The intellectual substance returns to the heaven whence it came. The animal breath, or the key, becomes united with the aerial fluid, whilst the earthly and liquid substances become once more earth and water. The Nature of Man Man, say our ancient sages, is a unique being, in whom are united the attributes of all other beings. He is endowed with intelligence, with the power of attaining perfection, with liberty, and with social qualities. He is able to discriminate, to compare, to work for a definite aim, and to take the necessary measures for the attainment of that aim. He may become perfect or depraved, according to the good or evil use he makes of his liberty. He is acquainted alike with virtue and vice, and feels that he has duties to perform toward heaven, himself, and his fellow men. If he acquit himself of these various duties, he is virtuous and worthy of recompense. He is culpable and merits punishment if he neglects them. This is a very short resume of all I can tell you of the nature of man. The king of Lu, it is said, was delighted with this reply, as how could he fail to be? Some years later, the monarch made his sage advisor prime minister of his realm, and the philosopher remained in power for three years, administering justice so rigorously that, says one of his biographers, if gold or jewels were dropped on the highway, they would remain untouched until the rightful owner appeared to claim them. The story goes that under Confucius, Lu became so prosperous as to arouse the jealousy of the neighboring king of Tsi, who, with a wonderful insight into human nature, sent not an army, but a troop of beautiful dancing girls to the court of the rival monarch. The maneuver was successful. The king of Lu neglected the affairs of state to watch the posturing of the sirens, and Confucius fell into disgrace. When he proudly told his sovereign to choose between him and the dancers, the old king promptly replied that he preferred the latter. So Confucius went forth with his followers to seek his fortunes elsewhere. Confucius on the Arts Many are the anecdotes told of the wanderings of the sage after his tragic end to his work of reformation in his native state. In some districts, he was gladly welcomed. In others, he was often in danger of his life. At the court of Yen, where the king questioned him much as the monarch of Lu had done, he held forth less on abstruse doctrine than on education. Young men, he is reported to have said, should travel and become acquainted with many lands, so as to be able to judge the customs of different nations and the peculiar characteristics of various races. I am so penetrated by this truth, he added, that I will not fail to put it into practice whenever I get the opportunity. I would recommend the exercises of the gymnasium to all adolescents, and the study of what are called the liberal arts, music, civil and religious ceremonial, arithmetic, fencing, and the art, sick, of managing skillfully a carriage of any kind drawn by horses or oxen. To his son, who asked him if he ought to devote himself to poetry, he replied, you will never know how to speak or write well unless you make verses. One day he met a party of hunters, and to the great surprise of his own followers, he asked to be allowed to join them, explaining that the first inhabitants of the earth lived by the chase alone, and adding that the reason he wished to be a hunter 
was to impress upon those about him once more how great a respect he had for the traditions of olden times he learnt music when very young and found in it a rest and recreation after his arduous and varied avocations he became it is said so wonderfully skilful in the art of music that when he had once heard the work of a composer he could draw a faithful portrait of him bringing out alike his physical and moral characteristics which was indeed going to the very root of the matter as for me i do not think it is by any means necessary to be able to perform on an instrument in order to form a very good idea of the character of such composers as rossini berlioz and wagner after hearing il barbari di seviglia le toyon or de meissenzinger but as for giving portraits of their personal appearance that would truly be difficult confucius who took to himself a wife at the age of nineteen was in favor of early marriages and placed the limit of age for a woman at twenty and for a man at thirty he found his arguments on the fact that in china a boy is considered to have become a man directly he enters his twentieth year and that as soon as a girl is fifteen the management of the house is entrusted to her during the winter whilst in the spring when ploughing begins she is sent to look after the mulberry trees at the respective ages of twenty and fifteen a boy and girl may become the head of a family if discreetly adds the sage the parents give permission meaning of the phoenix i take a real pleasure in recalling the kindly sayings of this old world sage who it must be remembered lived six hundred years before the birth of our lord a fact which ought to silence those who are accustomed to speak flippantly of the barbarism of past centuries moreover the laws and customs advocated by confucius had really been in force in what was then called the middle state for no less than two thousand five hundred years before the christian era but they had fallen into abeyance the great philosopher was not so much an innovator as a restorer for so lofty was the morality of the ancient laws that the chinese people never dreamt of modifying them hence the extraordinary immobility of the manners and customs of the orient which contrasts so forcibly with the constant eagerness in the west for meaningless novelties to give an account of the doctrines of confucius is really to revive the traditions of the remote past for which the celestials have so deep a reverence to give but one case in point noticing that all mandarins have a phoenix with outspread wings embroidered on their robes i inquired what it meant and learnt to my astonishment that in the year five hundred b c an emperor had ordered this design to be worn by his chief officers on their breasts the fabulous phoenix the herald of good fortune so often seen in china had appeared to this emperor on his ascent to the throne a sure symbol in the eye of the chinese of a prosperous reign and the conservative mandarins have kept up the custom of wearing a representation of the bird with outstretched wings ever since for the benefit of those who do not rightly reverence antiquity i will quote a speech on the subject of marriage addressed by confucius to the king of lu before the great philosopher was exiled from the kingdom he had ruled over so wisely marriage says the sage is the right state for man because it is only through marriage that he can fulfill his destiny upon earth there is therefore nothing more honorable nothing more worthy of his serious consideration than his power of fulfilling exactly all duties amongst these 
are some shared in common by both sexes, others which are to be performed by each sex in particular. The man is the head. It is for him to command. The woman is subject to him. It is for her to obey. It is the function of both together to imitate those operations of the heaven and the earth which combine in the production, the support, and the preservation of all things. Reciprocal tenderness, mutual confidence, truthfulness, and respect should form the foundation of their conduct. Instruction and direction on the part of the husband, docility and complacence on the part of the woman, in everything which does not interfere with the requirements of justice, propriety, and honor. Chinese widows. As society is now constituted, the woman owes all that she is to her husband. If death takes him from her, it does not make her her own mistress. As a daughter, she was under the authority of her father and mother, or failing them of the brothers older than herself. As a wife, she was ruled by her husband as long as he lived. As a widow, she is under the surveillance of her son, or, if she has several sons, of the eldest of them. And this son, whilst ministering to her with all possible affection and respect, will shield her from all the dangers to which the weakness of her sex might expose her. Custom does not permit second marriage to a widow, but prescribes, on the contrary, that she should seclude herself within the precincts of her own house and never leave it again all the rest of her life. She is forbidden to attend to any business, no matter what, outside her home. As a result, she ought not to understand any such business. She will not even meddle in domestic matters unless compelled to do so by necessity, that is to say, whilst her children are still young. During the day, she should avoid showing herself by refraining from going from room to room, unless obliged to do so. And during the night, the room in which she sleeps should always be lit up. Only by leading a retired life such as this will she win amongst her descendants the glory of having fulfilled the duties of a virtuous woman. It would indeed be difficult for a widow to live up to such an ideal as this, and that the Chinese themselves realize the fact is proved by their raising monuments to the memory of those who succeed. I have already said, adds Confucius, that between fifteen and twenty is the age at which a girl should change her state by marriage. As on this change of state depends the happiness or misery in which she will pass the rest of her days, nothing should be neglected to procure for her a proper establishment, and the most advantageous one permitted by circumstances. Special care should be taken not to allow her to enter a family which has taken part in any conspiracy against the state, or in any open revolt, or into one whose affairs are in disorder, or which is agitated by internal dissensions. She should not have a husband chosen for her who has been publicly dishonored by any crime bringing him under the notice of the law. To a man suffering from any chronic complaint, any mental eccentricity, any bodily deformity, such as would make it difficult to get on with him, or render him repulsive or disagreeable, or to a man who is the eldest of a family but has neither father nor mother. With the exception of these five classes of men, a husband may be chosen for her from any rank of society, with whom it will depend on herself alone, whether she passes her life happily or not. She has but to fulfill exactly all the duties of her new state to enjoy the portion of bliss destined for her. It is the parents who decide who their children shall marry, 
and a young Chinaman does not know his fiancée until the day of his wedding. This explains why Confucius thought it necessary to go into all these details on the subject of suitable husbands. Reasons for Divorce A husband, he adds, has the right to put away his wife, but he must not use this right in an arbitrary manner. He must have some legitimate cause for enforcing it. The legitimate causes of repudiation reduce themselves to seven. The first, when a woman cannot live in harmony with her father or mother-in-law. The second, if she is unable to perpetuate the race because of her recognized sterility. The third, if she be justly suspected of having violated conjugal fidelity, or if she gives any proof of unchastity. The fourth, if she bring trouble into her home by calumnious or indiscreet reports. The fifth, if she have any infirmity such as every man would naturally shrink from. The sixth, if it is difficult to correct her of the use of intemperate language. The seventh, if unknown to her husband, she steals anything secretly in the house, no matter from what motive. Although any one of these reasons is sufficient to authorize a husband to put away his wife, there are three circumstances which forbid him to use this right. The first, when his wife has neither father nor mother, and would have nowhere to go. The second, when she is in mourning for her father or mother-in-law, for three years after the death of either of them. The third, when her husband, having been poor when he married her, has subsequently become rich. Truly, there is much wisdom in the counsels of Confucius on the vexed subject of marriage, but it is impossible to help feeling that the very low view he took of the position of women detracts greatly from the merit of the discourse quoted above. We are, in fact, inclined to endorse the opinion of the missionary Gutzloff, who, speaking of the Reverend Sage, remarks, by not giving a proper rank in society to females, by denying to them the privileges which are their due as sisters, mothers and wives, and daughters, he has marred the harmony of social life and put a barrier against the improvement of society. The regeneration of China will, in fact, never take place, unless the females be raised from the degraded state which Confucius assigned to them. Suicide on yet another exciting topic, that of suicide, it will perhaps be salutary to relate one anecdote illustrating the view the reformer took of the matter. Now that so many despairing souls have lost the aids and consolations of religious faith in struggling with the difficulties of their life on earth, when followers of the stoical and heroic Zeno are becoming rarer and rarer, and so many young men and women resort to the fumes of charcoal or to the waters of the nearest river, to put an end to the woes they have not the courage to face. We must premise, however, that there is really far more excuse for an Asiatic to take his own life than for a European, there being nothing unreasonable about it according to the doctrine of Buddha, whose disciples believe firmly in the transmigration of souls. They do not, it is true, profess to know whether, if they commit suicide, they will become animals but they are firmly convinced that they will continue to live, whereas the atheist has faith in nothingness alone. In one of his many journeys, Confucius and his disciples met a man who was trying to strangle himself with a rope. When asked what his motives were for wishing to commit suicide, he replied that he had been a bad son, a bad father, and a bad citizen. 
the remorse he felt for the terrible character his self-examination revealed him to be, from all these three points of view, had made his life odious to him, and he had come out to a lonely place to put an end to it. Greatly shocked, Confucius reproved him, addressing him in the following terms. However great the crimes you have committed, the worst of all of them is yielding to despair. All the others may be allowed, but that is irredeemable. You have no doubt gone astray from the very first steps you took upon earth. You should have begun by being a man of ordinary worth before attempting to distinguish yourself. You cannot attain to being an eminent person until you have strictly fulfilled the duty imposed by nature on every human creature. You ought to have begun by being a good son. To love and serve those to whom you owed your being was the most essential of your obligations. You neglected to do so, and from that negligence have resulted all your misfortunes. Speech of Confucius Do not, however, suppose that all is lost. Take courage again, and try to become convinced of a truth which all past centuries have proved to be incontestable. This is the truth I refer to. Treasure it up in your mind, and never lose hold of it. As long as a person has life, there is no reason to despair of him. He may pass suddenly from the greatest trouble to the greatest joy, from the greatest misfortune to the greatest felicity. Take courage once more, return home, and strive to turn to account every instant, as if you began today for the first time to realize the value of life. Then, turning to the younger of his disciples, Confucius said to them, What you have heard from the lips of this man is an excellent lesson for you. Reflect seriously upon it, every one of you. After this remonstrance, it is said that thirteen of his followers of the sage left him to return home and perform their filial duties. The celestials, in fact, all agree in saying that filial piety was alike the groundwork of the Confucian philosophy and the foundation of Chinese society. In spite of much that is strange to European ideas, might we not well follow many of the precepts of the enlightened pre-Christian teacher? End of chapter 4